Miss Macintosh, my darling, chapter 55, part 2. He had made fun of Mr. Spitzer's cancelled postage stamps and obsolete coins like those uh, raked in now by an old beachcomber imagined himself an old croupier, perhaps with the wrong wheel. He had made fun of Mr. Spitzer's grandiose intellectual pretensions, his seldom consulted law library, with such volumes as ideas on taxation, guilt in the states, last bequests, progress of probate, authenticity of will, will of the deed, cases in chancery, laws governing New England fishing, laws governing whaling, that the man who found the whale was its owner and not the man who put his iron into it, for the man who put his iron into it might be dead a hundred years before the whale was found. His back bristling with spears like a bull, perhaps with a hundred harpoons bearing names, as many as some old graveyard floating to the surface with its tombstones and almost laden in names, so that the possessor was the first finder and not the first, as the first had gone to his grave, perhaps his grave in the sea, and many ships had gone down, or any other old volume which might have, or any old volume which might have ended up in such as Penguin Colonization, The Musical Sensibility of the King, Walrus, Burke's Peerage in the Penguin World, New England Mortality Rates, Actuarial Statistics, Laws of the Non-Returning Tides, The Habits of the Night-Crowned Kingfisher, The Life of the Phoenix Moth, His Obsolete Musical Instruments, His Zither with the Phoenix's Head on the Top, His Lute with the Angel's Head and Coif of Flying Curls, His Portrait of Music, The Seraph with His Wings Folded Against His Eyes, His Tortoise Harp, with the gut string stretched across, stretched inside its empty shell. Mr. Spitzer had found on the beach after the tide withdrew and had made a harp of it, though he could not play it, of course, for he had not been the musician, the impoverished, instrument, impoverished instrumentalist. But he had been the composer, and his house had been built so that he might compose his music. In every room there had been empty scrolls and music sheets and music stands. There were flagstones laid out like an enormous piano keyboard in ebony and white marble slabs between the twin gardens, or like the slabs of tombs and echoing pavement, each garden having been the repetition of the other, each with its blind boy Cupid in a pool in the whirling fog, each with its bow and arrow, each pointing at the other throughout all eternity, that there might be forever the face of love, and there were sundials under the ornamental shade trees, arranged with perfect equilibrium, casting their shadows like great, like great painted umbrellas, for the sundials were always in the shadows then as now, and the day was like the night, for the night was the time for meditation. A shadow had always marked the numerals on the face. Everything had been so carefully, precisely arranged and infinitely predictable, like a frozen music, with a long hallway dividing the house into identical halves, twin Corinthian columns and black and white parterres like chessboards on every floor level, and sudden flights of marble stairs like celestial wings with vast escarpments. Equal steps, space being bisected so that each brother might have his half of space, his hemisphere, never impinging upon the other's secrecy or freedom of physical motion, even of mental motion, so when the invisible dreams took over. But Perron, not appreciating these divisions, which had been made for the sake of unity, had been merciless, a great satirist, making fun of the geometrical circles divided into equal halves and halves of halves, the absolute equilibrium excluding every field of chance, parapets guarding the balconies, the isogen between two marble halls, the intricate angles and triangles and parallelograms, the exquisite symmetries and harmonious designs and painted shadows, candelabra repeating candelabra like those which Mr. Spitzer set out now upon a lonely shore, tapestry orange trees repeating orange trees, hallway table repeating hallway table, mirror repeating mirror, the madman's dream of absolute equality, 
that there should be no discrepant detail, no wandering perception, no indefinable thing. Nothing had escaped his satire. He had been cold and furious and yet poker-faced, treating all of Mr. Spitzer's life as if it had been a great joke, crowing like a mad rooster in the darkness, some great human-sized rooster with golden cockles and golden saddle feathers and a red coxcomb, crowing sometimes all night long on a parapet, or screaming like wild horses, whistling like a demented train whistle in the frozen darkness or a shrill star passing by, and when an eerie whistle had been his, often waking Mr. Spitzer in the night, the long nights, though he had immediately gone back to sleep again, thinking only that his brother had returned. I want to have Mr. Spitzer fully awakened then. Perone, who had thrown overboard the social conventions by which Joachim had lived or wished to live, had laughed uproariously at Mr. Spitzer's old-fashioned graces and airs and courtesies, and that consuming tact with which he had always treated his errant brother, seeming always undecided as to which half of the house was his, though there was an invisible chalk line between the house and the house, and he should have known. Perhaps there should have been signposts, but there had been faded signs like old letterings engraved on stones, eroded by snow and winds and rains. In Mr. Spitzer's household, the lone horseman was two horsemen, two pale cavaliers riding two pale horses. And which would win, he now must ask himself. Sometimes he heard, as if he were prone, the music of the ghostly turf booming like surf. There was never one, but there were two brothers. Perona made fun of the twin portraits on twin walls, a twin Lady Hamilton's, each with her velvet gown of oily mauve and faded violet and gold, the twin George Washington's, fording the twin Delawares, a slight ripple in one which was not in the other, the twin Duchesses of Devon ascending the twin high-wheelers of twin stepladders, the twin coachman with the twin umbrellas, the twin President Monroe's, each signing the Monroe Doctrine with a quill pen, the twin British red coats lost in old New England even now. Mr. Spitzer had no doubt. The twin bells of old New York, each with their tower of purple plumes like the smoke from chimney stacks. The twin President Garfields, the twin Roman senators addressing the twin Roman senates in the 3rd century BC by torchlight. The twin St. Bernard dogs rescuing the twin alpine travelers in the twin snowstorms. The twin mountain peaks, the twin frozen falls and seas of glass. There were the twin Queen Isabellas of Spain bidding farewell to Christopher Columbus twice. Twin portraits of his death in Popperdom when he was old and not known what country he had discovered, did not know what country he had discovered, had never seen the Chrysler building or the old Flatiron building or the old Fishback building looming above a sea of clouds or its reflection, had never seen Boston Common, had never seen this Orient, the old Third Avenue L, turning above the gilt pagodas and mystical laundry signs of old China ha- Chinatown, had never been welcomed by the mayor of the city or received a shower of ticker tape including torn up telephone books and old love letters, cast bills, light bills, and summonses to court. There were the twin portraits of the old-time Hoboken ferry boats, each leaving the Jersey Shore, each with its mysterious passenger on the upper deck. Mr. Spitzer believed it was a commercial traveler wrapped in his black coat. Cloak. There were the twin ball players, the twin batting averages, and the twin baseballs, all perones, just as there were many mementos morris of Joachim's life, canceled checks and obsolete bank balances old invitations which he had forgotten to answer or had answered years later, a letter from a dead lady asking him to come and hear the virginal, a letter from a dead lady asking him to come to tea and bring his brother, the musician, old theater tickets which he had forgotten to use, old concert programs announcing the divine Melba sings, Jenny Lind will sing tonight, encore performance, first American performance of old bull who played the violin before great kings was transported to a cloud, a cloud of music. Boston debut of the Swiss bell ringers, whom Mr. Spitzer knew were English by their tone, 
But Barone, who had never cared for conscious music, never attended a musical function, not at least while he was conscious, the only music he had ever cared for was a horse playing a banjo, particularly when the horse was the banjo sawing himself with an old bow or cane as the waves arose like blue flowers at his feet. Perhaps he had cared for the unconscious music, that which at the time Joaquim had not liked. When one looked for something, no matter what it was, there were always two. Two candle snuffers, two evening stars, two moons. Without this repetition of the repetition, perhaps Mr. Spitzer would have no life now. Perhaps he had had no life then. He had dreamed he was a star at dawn. He had dreamed the stars were candle flames moving across the dark sky. He had dreamed he was a sea of moths. He had dreamed he was combing the beach not of cockles but of hearts. He had dreamed he was his father. He had dreamed he was his mother. After Perone's death, he dreamed he was two brothers, and one was dead. Ah, oh, how beautiful the house had been, its dim interiors burning like a jewel, surely one of the show places of Boston it would have been, if many people had ever seen it, Mr. Spitzer believed, and there had been nothing on one side of the house which had not been perfectly balanced by its reflection on the other side of the mirroring house, and there had been two seas, the house extending like a roofless stream, room separating room, room repeating room with that exactitude which had made Mr. Spitzer so proud and tremulous. He had been so careful of these twin arrangements, which had led nothing to chance except the house itself. The plans, perhaps, would have baffled the greatest architect, but they had not baffled Mr. Spitzer, certainly, for he had made the plans and had insisted on his accuracy, which should ignore the architectural impossibility or the engineering defect, a slight flaw in the creation. Using compasses like those which had moved between two golden-footed stars also moving, using slide rulers and quadrants and plumb lines or spirit levels like a mariner sounding lead to assure that nothing was out of plumb, not vertical, not true according to his plans, to ascertain with inscrutable accuracy the dimension of quality or depth, to sound the soundless depths where were no tides, and using visible lines to mark the visible horizon, and a network of invisible lines to mark the invisible horizon. He had drawn the intricate maps, accurate as archaic weather charts of those storms which had already passed, those swells and calms which were no more, that eye of the lidded hurricane, those curls of the faded clouds, beautiful as early mariners' charts of speculative winds and waters and stars and locations of islands and continental shelves, bays and meads and harbors and shoals and reefs and eternal whirlpools, had shown, on his map, a bridge over every conceivable void, had shown the exact locations of the balconies and the marble stairways, two steps and three steps between floor levels on a single plane, the doors repeating the doors, the windows repeating the windows, the uneven columns balancing the uneven columns, the thousand plinths not ten thousand plinths, the circles and squares and angles and triangles and bisected triangles and parallels extending to infinity. So the Perone could find his way even in the darkness of necessary and know at all times which side of the house was his, and not disturb poor Joaquim by sudden interruptions and loud noises calculated to arouse him from his sleep. So much of his best music had been composed while he was sleeping, wrapped in his silken thoughts like some old cocoon, as surely he realized now, for so much had been lost when he had awakened. Here's your reminder. Lunch. <laughs> Here's your reminder. Lunch. And surely he realized now, for so much had been lost when he had awakened or nearly awakened. It had been his desire that nothing should be moved out of its place so long as he lived, he having lived at that period a memory of himself. For only by this deeply interior need, this need to escape from reality in the exterior world, only by this interior order could he assure and safeguard his mental order, that serenity he had needed for the unheard music, filled silent song like a dark river running through his mind. Ah, uh, he had forgotten so many partial melodies. The fragmentations of his personality had always agitated him. Silence was more beautiful than music, for the echo was more beautiful than the sound, he had always said, and the silence was more beautiful than the echo. Sound was life. 
Echo of echo. Death was silence, though it was also figured like a state of mind. He believed, for there could be no state of mind which was not figured, wrought with its possibilities. But Perrault, who had been indifferent to his environment, had moved and had always moved things out of their places without regard to Joaquin's desires or the architectural blueprints, had not familiarized himself with these dual arrangements, had walked from mirroring room to mirroring room, making a loud noise and cursing when he bumped against an unexpected obstacle, a wandering table or chair or mirror, acting as if it were the obstacle which moved and not he, for he had been merely, merely a stranger in his own house, indeed had been a rare visitor had seldom come home and then had only come to change his shirt or borrow money as he went from one steeplechase to another steeplechase or sulky race or beagle race. He had made fun of the rows of crystal street lamps, the hitching posts which were like, which were little black boys with golden turbans, the many mirrors, the interior port cochere and bacotas in Mr. Spitzer's house, the faded silks and gilded bell ropes, the gilded weather vanes and foggy parlors. He had made fun of all those curtains which were transparencies through which there shone flights of birds and moons. He had made fun of all those dim reflections and presentiments of future life. He had kicked against the golden harps and viols, causing those lost chord-like chaos to wander in the air, quivering for years and years in Mr. Spitzer's musical memory, until by the very insistence of their repetition they assumed a pattern of their own, and they were the unconscious music becoming the conscious music, Mr. Spitzer believed. So the conscious music became the unconscious. His brother had opened the wrong doors, knocked against the wrong walls. He had made so much noise at times that Mr. Spitzer, trembling in his sleep, had thought he was the avant courier of the gale, a sound coming from all sides, making the house tremble, the weather vanes creak. Sometimes even now, so many years after his brother's death, Mr. Spitzer heard this sound, vast and terrifying as an almighty overture, screaming like demonic furies which ride the whirlwinds. So there was this much which was immortal, the sound. The sound had almost awakened him when his brother was dead, sleeping in his grave. Mr. Spitzer heard at times the sign of the autumn leaves, the rattle of hailstones. Sometimes even now Mr. Spitzer would be awakened, almost awakened, thinking it was his brother before, with the slow dawn of consciousness like twilight streaking the dim sky, with a momentary silver and gold and distant gleamings as of moth wings, a solitary sea of trembling moths. He would recognize that it was no one, that only his dreams had almost awakened him, and he was alone, and time had passed. Many waters had boomed against the rocks, corroded to weird, fantastic shapes he did not recognize. His memory was become like an Aeolian harp, a harp with many strings, rigorous though he was, and wishing to define each errant impression, and to be sure that it was his, for he lived also in memory of himself, the dead composer. In his mind did not now so easily differentiate between himself and his brother as in the past, there being now no thinker thinking Mr. Spitzer's thoughts, no sense of intimate immediacy, but only his thoughts thinking him, there being no composer, really, of the distraught music he sometimes heard, making him feel as if he could not compete with so many raspings, and the echoing silence should be his only answer. He was a man who wore the blurred facial expression of one who continually leans forward into the wind. The vaporous serenity of his facial expression was that which should signify his perpetual pain and his astonishment that, in spite of all the odds against him, it was he who had lived and his brother, the winner, had died, leaving him to mourn for all those hopes which had been unfulfilled and unrealized. And how could this be? So much of life Mr. Spitzer had missed. Sometimes, too, he would be almost awakened by yet another sound, a strange buzzing sound which continually disturbed his peace, like a bumblebee buzzing in a winter room walled by walls of ice like an iceberg, or the wasp between two papery walls, a strange persistent buzzing sound like a disconnected telephone buzzing in an empty house, or an empty star. And why should he hear and why should he answer? 
or the buzzing and snoring sound of a distant sea, the winter sea which scarcely moved as if the moon had lost its power to pull the tide, perhaps a thaw like the summer or the winter rain, or the drone of a voice no longer heard or heard only in his demented memory, for only gradually was he able to define the source of the sound that it was himself who had turned in his sleep and had almost awakened him, and had caused both his unbelievable torment and his permanent stupor. His dull-wittedness affecting his mind, his lack of power to focus his wandering attention upon the present moment, of which he was never indeed quite aware. He was not, an om he was not omniscient, though Heron's blue eye floated out of his forehead, or if so, his vision was in another sphere. He could not see sometimes beyond his hand, white and fat and soft, the fingers preternaturally long. He could scarcely see the numbers on his wristwatch, like the wafer of the jellyfish, for the moment had passed before he noticed. <clears throat> he did not know he had been asleep until he had almost awakened, and he doubted that he was ever fully awake, just as he had never been fully asleep, but was at this misty boundary line between what was possible and what was literally impossible, between his sleeping and his lethargic waking, his complete life and his complete death or extinction of consciousness, between brother and brother, so must be more than cautious, taking nothing for granted, nothing for granted in this life, knowing that his vision was impaired by his grief, his immortal grief, which caused these present distortions, warpings, exaggerations. This was not Mr. Spitzer believed, it could never have been in any life whatever, a gambler's cold and shrewd and calculating mind. He wanted to lose. Unlike his brother, who had figured all the advantages, or so it seemed to Mr. Spitzer now, he could not have been a good gambler, great though, his, great though was his musical intelligence. He could not have played poker with skill, for he could not never have been able to distinguish between two spots and three spots. When he looked at one spot, his eye saw two spots. When he looked at two spots, his eye saw four spots. The black spots danced when he stared. His eyes were not parallel eyes. His eyes saw double images, and the double images did not fuse into one. In order to know what he saw, he must add, subtract. Doubtless many people saw double images of which they were unaware, but Mr. Spitzer was aware that he could never see one thing without seeing two. Two moons in the skies, he would always say, sighingly, and they might be four. He suffered from retinal rivalry for his dualistic problems, far from decreasing, had increased since his brother's death. Each eye was like a mirror looking on a different space. The small things seemed large and the great things seemed small, even minuscule as atoms dance in the void. That which seemed a large bird in the clouded sky was an insect zooming close to his clouded eyeball or was a wandering snowflake so that necessarily, in order to be perfectly sure of every step, he moved with a kind of persistent uncertainty, even through a familiar landscape, afraid that every step might be or had been his last, afraid that he might lose his precarious balance, fall with the falling snow. The proportions for him were not those which pertained to other people, he sometimes thought, though well aware that no one could really know the complications of another person's mind, especially if he did not know his own and was a stranger to himself. Indeed, to Mr. Spitzer, this nearly accurate gentleman who wished to understand the linear perspectives and all their possible dimensions, to be semper fidelis, semper idem, semper partus, for this was the model he had adopted for himself in his youth, the ethical code by which he had chosen to conduct his life in these sad orchestrations of disrelated fragments. Such opposites in space were very confusing, perhaps more so than, than they would have been to another, and less, less conscientious gentleman, such as his brother, the master illusionist had been thriving simply because most people believed what they saw. Ordinarily, the far things seemed diminished in size, gradually fading to undifferentiated distance as one may see by muted colors slipping toward the far horizon. As one may see by patches of shadow and light, the nearer things seem large simply because of their proximity and because they are tangible 
These perspectives and proportions of Mr. Spitzer's case were reversed almost exactly, faraway things seeming large, looming upon a far horizon like clouds piled above clouds, even when they were small, and the near things seeming small, sometimes nearly imperceptible, and thus he had mistaken a near skyscraper for the many-windowed back of a fly. Thus the city was become, for no other reason but this, a wilderness of mirages changing as Mr. Spitzer moved, as the fly in the distance became the skyscraper. Distortions bloomed in his path, his crooked path, that which had seemed gleaming in the opaque distance a minaret or a city of minarets was, when he drew near, a seashell covered with barnacles. He had observed so many times that he should have been almost sure this was always true, and yet it was not always true. The vast mountains were mole hills, and the mole hills were vast mountains. He seemed to live through a geological epoch simply when he took his evening walk, morning walk. A door was an old clamshell swinging on broken hinges. Had these distortions been constant? He could perhaps have understood them, could have understood whether he walked across cinders or glass, but then he could not even count on the permanent impairment of his vision. Quite suddenly, everything might be in balance, and this fact was as much a cause of his vague fear as, as the disproportions which might have been correct if they had been continuous, like a sleep, if he had not awakened. He would sometimes close one eye in order that, with that vision which remained to him, he might see only one image, though curiously wavering. If he opened both eyes, as others might do when they wished to see with a great clarity, his confusions were simply greater. It doubled as if he were still living half for his brother, and this was not the actual truth. Half of Mr. Spitzer was dead, for half of Mr. Spitzer was in the darkness. He felt pass over him a great billowing shadow. He was afraid to close his staring eyes, at least simultaneously, for fear he might never open them again, and might be now where his brother was. Often, therefore, Mr. Spitzer slept with his eyes open, and practiced closing first one eye and then the other eye. Often he slept when he seemed to be listening, plugging at one ear. Perhaps as he never slept, he was always sleeping. The idea had occurred to him, naturally, among so many other forlorn possibilities, those which were no more. He had been drugged since his brother's death. Sometimes he rapidly blinked his eyes as traffic headlights blinked, noting also to his great astonishment that the stars blinked as if they were signaling far away. When should he outlive this grief or regain that balance he had lost when his brother departed, departed this life? Departed from this world, this sad world, as Mr. Spitzer would silently inquire, his face quivering with remorse that it was not he who had departed.